to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. So if there's one thing I love more than history, it's language. So I thought I'd give myself a little treat this week by doing a bit of a crossover episode where I talk about some American idioms and the history that inspired them. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, so we're going to do, um, it'll be like a little call and response here, get you a little more involved, Clay. So tell me, what do I mean when I say I'm going to butter you up? Okay, uh, this is fun. Butter me up, mm-hmm. that means to, um, you know, I, I j- just a heads up, I am terrible at describing. <laughs> I, I'm a terrible dictionary, <laughs> um, but buttering up, uh, it, it yeah, it, it seems to mean like, uh, putting someone in a good mood, getting someone ready for something. Like if you want to butter them up to ask them uh, for a favor, you would get them in a good mood, get them jolly, get them happy before spring. I, I guess it's before springing something upon them, right? Yeah, usually I would say so. Okay. I'd, I'd say that's fair. So that idiom actually dates all the way back to the 1600s BCE. Wow. Yeah. So back at that time, people in India would offer ghee or clarified butter to their gods to seek their favor or beg their forgiveness. And they would do this by forming the ghee into a ball and throwing it at the statue of the deity in question. Then a a couple thousand years later, during the Tang Dynasty in Tibet, people would create sculptures of their gods out of butter during the New Year celebration in the hope of earning peace and happiness throughout that year. Ah. (laughs) Yeah. Out of butter, though. Out of butter. That's very strange. Yes, it is. But that's why you butter people up. Now, let's say you've tried to butter me up, but it backfires, and I read you the riot act. What does that mean? You know what? I don't think I've ever heard that before. You've never heard Read the Riot Act? No, I don't think so. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll take this one. This one is, is pretty pretty common. I'd be surprised if like a, a lot of other people hadn't heard it before. But basically, it's like you're really giving it to somebody. Like you are pissed off and you're really letting them know it. You read the Riot Act like you're really dressing somebody down. Laying into them. Laying into them big time. Okay. So this one is kind of right there in your face, but it blew my mind when I found out that there was such a thing as the Riot Act. In the early 18th century, George I of England and the British government at large were concerned about being overthrown. There was a lot of unrest in England at the time, starting with the Sacheverell Riots in 1710, which was basically yet another clash between Protestants and Catholics, which I feel like has come up several times already on our show. They're always having at it. They hate each other. So this particular riot in 1710 started in London, but it soon spread to North Devon, Lincolnshire, and Wrexham in Wales. So this was kind of like, it became a very big deal. A few years later, in 1714, riots broke out all over the south and west of England because of the coronation of King George. And then again the following year for basically the same reason. Hmm. A big issue along with the religious stuff um, that was all tangled up in this was that George was German, not English. Oh. He was from Hanover. 
Oh. I'd be happy to do a whole episode about that issue because it actually deals with the royal stewards of England and Scotland, who I'm related to. No big deal. Well, well, well. I know. Uh, but yeah, so King George was sick of the rioters, and along with his freshly appointed members of parliament, he drafted a little something called an act for preventing tumults and riotous assemblies and for the more speedy and effectual punishing of the rioters, more commonly known as the Riot Act. Yeah, that that that, that slides off the tongue. Yeah, it, it needs a much zippier name. It's it's you know, they're very fancy and they're big, gigantic powdered wigs. So the Riot Act banned groups of twelve or more from gathering, like for any reason. Oh man. Um like a church congregation that doesn't count, but gathering in public. Groups of 12 or more banned. And if you did gather, you had one hour to disperse or you would face felony charges punishable by death. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Very serious. Very serious. He was tired of it. So the Riot Act passed into law on August the 1st, 1715, with similar laws going into effect in the British colonies of America, Canada, and Australia. Okay. So what if, honey, instead of reading you the Riot Act... I decided to turn a blind eye. What does that mean? Oh, well, that means almost the complete opposite. Yeah. You ignore the issue at hand. Even though it's kind of, it's right there, I'm just going to not see it. You're going to turn blind to it. Yes. So this one is sort of disputed. But the most commonly accepted origin for this idiom is Admiral Horatio Nelson, who I actually have on my list to do a full episode on at some point. Oh, cool. The, the the knockoff brand Captain Morgan um, is called Admiral Nelson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is named after Admiral Horatio Nelson. That's right. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm a little familiar with that, too. Yeah. It's it's very... He's got a very interesting story. <laughs> um, but for that reason, I'm, I'm not going to go too much into his story right now. But suffice to say, he was an extremely important figure in British naval history. So he was wounded during the invasion of Corsica in 1794. Basically, he was standing too close to a sandbag when it got blasted during battle, and he took some shrapnel to his right eye, mm. which left him mostly blinded on that side for the rest of his life. As he described it, he could tell light from dark out of that eye, but he couldn't see colors or shapes. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. So let's jump ahead to the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801, where things got off to a disastrous start for the British. Admiral Sir Hyde Parker, which, oh my God, what a name. Yeah. uh, Was ready to call it quits pretty fast because he didn't see any way to turn things around uh, because they were taking such heavy fire from the Danish military. So he used flag signals to communicate with Admiral Nelson on the HMS Elephant. Kind of over on the other side of the battle. Parker knew that Nelson's pride was not going to allow him to be the one to call for surrender. So he thought he'd be a bro and call for it instead. So like, you don't have to, you know, it'll be on me. I'll take, you know, the shame or whatever. The signal lieutenant told Nelson about the message from Parker and Nelson got mad at him because he was supposed to be keeping an eye on the Dutch to watch for their surrender. Like, don't be looking at him. Look at him. So then he turns to his flag captain, holds his telescope up to his right eye and says, I really do not see the signal. (laughs) And of course, his right eye was the blind one. He turned a blind eye to the call for surrender. So he he did it first figuratively. Mm -hmm. 
bought by a vice. Well, yeah. <laughs> and then he did it literally. literally. Uh-huh. He's like, I want to make sure you really understand the joke here. Yeah. Or it's like he said the first part of it. He's like, no, no, no. Don't even be looking over there. Don't even worry about it. And he was like, oh, I just thought of the best prank. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Apparently, this was not the only time he pulled that gag either. Like, I think he he liked it so much the first time that, like, every time he wanted to make a point, he just, like, put the telescope up to his right eye and just kind of be a silly billy. <laughs> okay. So, I've turned a blind eye instead of reading you the riot act for trying to butter me up. Some would say that makes me mad as a hatter. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, that this is this is a weird one because... I, I I think this is a, a really old term that really isn't used anymore. It's not used as much in America. Okay. Um, it famously used in Hamilton. Madison, you're mad as a hatter, so take your medicine. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and of course, um, uh, I'm sure it's going to come up in just a second, but Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland, for sure. Um, which which I would assume, just using that as a reference, because that's really the only time I've ever heard it, <laughs> besides Hamilton, yeah. is uh, that you're just mad. But uh-huh. not just mad as in like, well, the colloquial um, uh, crazy, uh-huh. but like literally uh, crazy, because the Mad, the mad Hatter was mad. He was bonkers. He was, cra- he was crazy. Oh, he wasn't yeah. just acting off he was at, he was completely he was deranged. gone yeah but so so i guess i guess what i'm trying to say here is i don't know if it means mad as in like your 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 chum knocks over a trash can and you're like oh my gosh you're so mad or your chum <laughs> is like foaming at the mouth biting policemen and you're saying he has gone mad <laughs> <laughs> okay so it's it is the second one Okay. He's foaming at the mouth and biting a policeman. Um, and they actually, like, as you said, ties into Alice in Wonderland. They actually did a great job of explaining this in the Mad Hatter's origin story episode of Once Upon a Time. So anybody who's ever seen that, if you remember um, Sebastian Stan's killer performance as the Mad Hatter, when they <laughs> when they showed his backstory and what kind of made him the Mad Hatter, they actually were playing on the history of that idiom. Okay. Which was very interesting. Um, So between the 1700s through the early 1900s, felt hats, so felt hats used to be made out of fur. And the fur was treated with a neurotoxin known as mercury. Oh. And that is how you turn fur into felt, is with mercury. Most hats were made out of felt. Okay. So, according to the EPA, prolonged exposure to mercury can cause headaches and tremors, as well as mood swings, irritability, nervousness, and excessive shyness. If you are working with it all day, every day, as your pres- like that's your profession, you're breathing in the fumes, you're touching it barehanded, you will be mad as a hatter. Wow. Yeah. So, because I'm mad as a hatter, I often fly by the seat of my pants. (laughs) How would you describe someone's behavior in that scenario if they're flying by the seat of their pants? Uh, Doing things just on a whim. Yeah. Not taking precautions, right? 
Exactly. And this is something that I've actually seen. And this, it, this could be true in other communities as well, but in the writing community, um, you often like other writers, you know, will ask each other, um, are you a planner or a pantser? <laughs> like, do you come up with an outline or do you just let the story, are you Stephen King and you just sit down and start writing, you know? Yeah. So when aviation was getting its start, planes did not have all the fancy navigational equipment they do now, nor did they have things to like effectively measure barometric pressure and meteorology was even less of an exact science than it is today. It was essential that these early pilots could properly assess cloud cover because if they get up there and it's super foggy or they end up in the middle of a storm, like they're going to be dire consequences. Sure. But of course, things can change quickly where the weather is concerned. So instinct is a big part of the decision making process. But so was the feel of the plane. The amount of vibrations could be an indication of things to come. Their butts the seat of their pants made more contact with the plane than any other part of their body. So if a pilot starts feeling a lot of butt vibrations, that's a good indicator that they need to make an emergency landing. Mm. Whereas if they aren't getting a free chair massage, they're probably fine to keep on going. Wow. Yep. So they, they would quite literally fly by the seat of their (laughs) pants. I guess it gives a bit of a different, um, it's a bit different in that way, right? Yeah. Because they weren't just going off a whim. Mm-hmm. They were going off their, their, they were thinking with their ass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. It is. I, I like that one a lot. Yeah. Here's the thing though. Flying by the seat of your pants is not always viewed favorably these days. And say you're doing that on a big important project and your boss catches you red handed. What did they just do? Oh, they caught you in the act of of flying by your pants. <laughs> they caught you. Yes, they like saw you actively doing this thing you're not supposed to be doing. So for this one, we have to go all the way back to Scotland in 1432 and the Scottish Acts of Parliament of James I, which includes this banger. That the offender be taken red hand may be pursued and put to the knowledge of an assize before the baron or landlord of the land or ground, whether the offender be his tenant unto whom the wrong is done or not. So (laughs) basically, if you get caught poaching and there's blood on your hands, literally, your landlord can haul your ass to court, no questions asked. Okay. So, so, so this is literal. Literal. Yeah. Yes. So from 1432 onward, the phrase red hand or red handed started showing up in legal documents more and more to refer to people who were caught in the act of committing a crime. So at first it was poaching and then it was like poaching or murder. Like you literally have blood on your hands. Yeah. But then it just kind of took on a life of its own to where now everybody is like, you know, who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? Well, I caught you red handed. That's could mean yeah anything <laughs> i like it yeah that's so pretty good that was, that was uh it's just crazy to think it started off as a legal term in 1432 yeah a long time ago yeah very strange so you don't want to be caught red-handed when you're doing something wrong but you also don't want somebody stealing your thunder when you're doing something right right what does that mean well that means they uh they they're, they're basically taking credit 
or something, or they're they're ruining your your um your superlative. Mm-hmm. They're 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 rain, they're raining on your day. Well, I guess I guess that wouldn't quite be right. I guess stealing your thunder does mean they are taking credit for something that you have done. Yes, that is exactly it. Okay. For this, we look to John Dennis, a certified theater nerd from England. He was never very successful, as evidenced by the fact that nobody listening has ever heard of John Dennis before. But that didn't stop him from continuing to write and produce plays. In 1709, he did a reworking of Appius and Virginia, a tragedy originally written by John Webster about two ill-fated lovers in ancient Rome. Dennis's version included a storm scene for which he invented the thunder sheet, which has been used in plays, radio productions, musical tracks, and films in the years since. It stood the test of time. People still use it. So Dennis is the guy who came up with the idea of shaking around a big metal sheet to approximate the sound of thunder. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. All the way back in 1709, he invented this effect. So despite this innovation, the play was yet another in a long line of flops for Dennis. Sometime later, the same theater put on a production of Macbeth that Dennis happened to catch. Problems arose when during the storm scene, Dennis heard a rather familiar sound. Oh, no. The incident was later recalled as such. Incensed by this circumstance, he cried out in a transport of resentment. That is my thunder, by God. The villains will play my thunder, but not my plays. They stole his thunder. That's crazy. Yeah. It's literally. <laughs> I always assumed it was like somehow like Zeus or Thor adjacent. Yeah. This phrase. No, no. John Dennis invented the thunder sheet. And this this playhouse kicked him out, refused to do any more of his shows. But then the backstage guys, he had to teach them how to do the thunder for his show. And so then they just kept doing it. Man, that is cold and dirty. It is cold and dirty. But at the end of the day, you know, what do I know? You should take all of this with a grain of salt. Hey, that's another idiom. You know, as I'm listening to you, I'm waiting like at the end of the day. I know what that means. (laughs) Oh, wait, that's not the one. (laughs) It's not even an idiom. (laughs) Literally at the end of the day. Um, So how would you explain taking something with a grain of salt? Uh, Taking the thing that they had said um, with a, a large or at least an amount of skepticism. Yes, exactly. So for this final tidbit of history, we're all the way back in the year 77. Wow. Yeah, (laughs) very, very far back. It's 77. Um, With the publication of Pliny the Elder's Naturalis Historia. Hmm. It contained a recipe for an antidote for poison that included adding a single grain of salt. So oh. the joke became that if anyone ever threatened to poison you, you would take their threat with a grain of salt. Isn't language fun? That is pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. that's And it's wild to me to think that this has been around for like almost 2,000 years. Well, has has it been around like this whole time or was it like rediscovered? 
and, and more modern people were like, this is interesting. As I mean, as far as I can tell, people were literally making that joke at the time, like saying, oh, oh yeah, I'll <laughs> take, oh, like, I'm going to poison you with a mercury hat. Like, yeah, okay, I'm taking that with a grain of salt. That's funny. Yeah. So I don't know that it's it's been around consistently since then, but it yeah. was at the time people were, were making that little joke. That's great. Yeah, so, you know, there you go. That's your, your language lesson for today. I love language. Yeah, we're going to do a new podcast, Fantastic Language. Um, that would be great. Yeah, look out for that. Um, it Really, it sounds so boring. It sounds boring, but I always <laughs> love learning about th- th- about language because it's always something that I didn't know that I didn't know. Yeah, same. A lot, a like lot. everything on this list, really, except for the Mad Hatter thing that I yeah. learned from Once Upon a Time. <laughs> um, you know, this was all kind of new to me. Yeah, and you would have never thought about it. No, and uh, so I, you know what, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, um, thank you, thank you very much for your compliments that I'm sure you're shouting <laughs> at your your stereo <laughs> or into your earbuds right now. Um, thanks for giving us a little bit of your time today, even though this is. You know, it was still a history episode. I think it still fits, but absolutely, but different. This is you know different than than previous episodes. I would say. Um, regardless, take a second to give us five stars. Leave a nice review for us. You know, whatever you're listening on right now. I think pretty much every platform takes ratings and reviews at this point. Um, you can also check us out on Instagram and Twitter. I have no idea how I would do pictures for this episode. I'll think of something. Don't worry <laughs> about it. You know what? Check us out on at Fantastic HPod on Twitter or Instagram just to see what uh, what I came up with there. How about that? Uh, you can also drop us a line at FantasticHistoryPod at gmail.com. Until next time. Mm-hmm.